Welcome to the RevOps Lab, a podcast exploring the art and science of revenue operations. To find more episodes and resources on scaling your revenue engine, visit getweflow.com slash RevOps. Hey, Janis. Hey, Philip. So why should we listen to today's episode? In this episode, we talk with Charlie, also known as RevOps Charlie, about RevOps as a strategic function, getting an end-to-end -end view on the buyer journey. And we'll dive deep into how RevOps organizations change in context of the size of the company. As a bonus, Charlie shares how to write a book. Please enjoy. Yeah, uh, really impressive. And we're excited to have you here. So welcome, Charlie. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Philip and Yanis. It's a real pleasure to be here. And it's uh, lovely to hear that uh, that history there. It's been quite a journey. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I believe that. How do you, how are you able to create so much content in such a short amount of time? That's that's just insane to me. How yeah. did you do that? It uh, I mean, it goes back a bit to uh, to lockdown and the year of the the pandemic. And uh, I read a book called Atomic Habits back then, and okay. uh, sort of bestseller. I'm sure it sat on many coffee tables. Maybe some people have opened it as yes. well. Um, but uh, one of the things that he talks about in that is about uh, creating a good habits by focusing on the, the outcome. Uh, sorry, by focusing on the input, not on the outcome. And so if you take the example of someone that says, oh, I want to get fit or I want to lose weight, then that's what they focus on. When the reality is if you focused on at 12 o'clock every day, I'll shut my laptop and I'll do a 5K run. That is much easier to focus on. And at the end of it, you will end up losing weight or becoming fit. And for me, it was at the time when I had a lot of extra time on my hands because of lockdown. I wasn't commuting. I had this idea that I wanted to write a book for first time sellers that were just getting into their sales career. And one of the examples he uses uh, in, in uh, his book is about writing a book. A lot of people say they want to write a book, but very few people do because they're focused on the output, not on the input. And so for me, I said, right, at eight o'clock in the morning, I will open up my laptop and I will write for one hour. And so I just wrote a chapter, wrote a chapter, wrote a chapter. And then that started in September. By December, I was like, ah, I think I've written a book. And um, so I was able to uh, self-publish that. And I've just kept that habit. Uh, every day, weekdays, weekends, uh, my kids call it my power hour, you know, get up, walk the dog, and then I will write from eight to nine. And many of those days, I won't know what I'm going to write when I sit down or it'll come to me during the dog walk. But it's just become that muscle. And uh, I use that to be able to write uh, the blogs that I write, the newsletter that I write, and, uh, and a new book uh, that I'm working on at the moment focused on revenue operations. Okay, that's um, that's really really impressive. Is there like so? I actually also I also read the book, um, like half of it. I read half the book, then I watched the YouTube video that summarized it. Um, <laughs> so that worked for me. Um, but in, like, is there anything specific that you that you learned from creating um, so much content? I mean, there must be, right? For me, the little secret is it's the best way that I learn is by writing. So to, to write something, you have to really think about it and think about uh, how you want to structure your point of view or your perspective. And so actually, when I start writing something, I don't really know what my point of view is or what my perspective is. So my, so my writing process is, uh, you know, I wake up in the morning and I take the dog for a walk first thing. And at that point, I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to write about today? Like, I haven't really got a thought. But something will come to me about 
an article that I read the day before or a conversation I had with a client or maybe it's some chapter that I need to write uh, for the book. Then I'll get back. Then it's time for a shower. And then in the shower, which is where most people have some of their great thoughts, is when I'll start thinking through, right, okay, if I'm going to write about this morning, I was writing about org structures in a Series A business. So if I'm going to write about an org structure in a Series A business, what do I think are the top sort of two or three things that I might want to talk about? Well, today was like, I might want to talk about the leadership structure, what kind of roles should you have, and then about how do you plan. So it's like these would be the, the headings or the H2s uh, of, your, uh, of your article. And then at eight o'clock, I'm sat down and then it's just about how it comes because I've, I've spent an hour or so thinking about what I want to write and then it just comes out. And so for me, the actual writing bit is not necessarily the difficult bit. It's the hour that's happened before that about thinking about what's the topic, what would be the three main bullet points, and then just getting it out without worrying about any grammar or editing. And like when you write and also just in general, like how you act like Red Ops Charlie, do you look at revenue operations? Because it's such a wide field, right? Like mm. there's so many different parts, like things that are part of revenue operations. Do you look at revenue operations through a specific lens, um, also to, has to have more focus, or how do you how do you deal with that topic overall? Mm. Yeah, some days I feel like a bit of an imposter in in revenue operations because I come to it from a 20 year uh, background in sales and enterprise SaaS sales, and uh, so I went through this process of writing this book to help first time sellers, and one of the lovely uh, byproducts of that was I got invited in to do some uh, sales training, coaching, a bit of consultancy around that. But it was clear to me that, that sales is not the answer to everything that's going on in the way that customers are, are buying right now. Certainly post-COVID, uh, buyers want to educate themselves uh, much more before they get in touch with a, a vendor. When they do put their hand up and want to speak to a vendor, they want that person to be super uh, educated about their business, about their industry, and actually be more of a consultant to them than a than a junior seller. And so, from the buyer's perspective, they're looking in at our companies and saying, "I want to interact with a combined revenue organization that has experience about what other customers are doing, and about how people are integrating, and about how they phase their projects." and about how they've structured their team. I don't want to speak to some junior rep says, look, I can't help you with any of those questions, but what I can do is ask you some med pick or bant questions, and then I can book you in to speak to someone else that's a little bit further along uh, in the, on the conveyor belt, and they won't know the questions that you want, and they'll book you into another meeting. And it's very much this, you know, as a buyer, I want everything all at once. And so that's my view into revenue operations that revenue operations is about aligning marketing, sales, and customer success, but for the benefit of the buyer looking in at your organization, not just for the benefit of our operations team to be able to report and get commission data and product usage data in one system. And so that's definitely been my kind of, my kind of journey in of looking outside in rather than a systems-led inside-out perspective. Right. So I think... Um... Uh, in one of your YouTube videos, you also shared that quite remarkable statistic, I think, is that uh, for all successful deals that go through, prospects actually only spent, I think, what, was it 70% of their time talking to sales or customer success, but 83% yeah. of their time 
researching? Exactly. Yeah, it's a good Gartner um, stat. And in fact, Gartner have a great um, set of pages which are free to access around buyer enablement. If you search Gartner buyer enablement and uh, yeah, some research that they put out that in a typical buying process, a buyer will only spend 17% of that time speaking to suppliers. And that's all suppliers. So if you imagine they're looking at three different suppliers, then you can you know, cut that down to maybe only five or six percent of the time they're spending with you. So um, the rest of it is internal discussion with their team. Uh, it's doing offline research, uh, going to events uh, and so on. Uh, it's online research, uh, downloading reports, speaking to analysts and so on. And so this, again, kind of leads to my transition from being just pure a salesperson to revenue operations. If your customer is spending 83% of their time not in touch with your organization, your sellers, then just being better at selling, oh, here's the ultimate you know, opening line or the ultimate email, that can only affect 5 or 6% of the buyer's experience. And we need to think much more broadly about the interaction they have uh, before they speak to our company and as they're speaking with uh, people later on in the process. So, I mean, like, just, just to recap then, just to make sure I understood it uh, correctly. So basically, you're saying revenue operations is very much about basically understanding the, the buyer process from the buyer's perspective, obviously, and then making sure that all the go-to-market functions, like particularly marketing, um, customer success, et cetera, so solution engineering, and so on, are aligned in order to make sure that those 83% of time they spend actually researching your company, understanding your product, et cetera, all resonate well. So during that 70% of time, you actually try to make it as easy as possible for sales to just, you know, go through like the, the typical steps. But the impact that sales actually has in the end is, I mean, there is an impact, right? For sure. Um, but it's probably less big than, um, you know, everything else that has happened outside of the sales conversation. Is that fair or... Am I going too far here? No, no, no. That's, uh, you know, I, I think about how we buy things as individuals, um, whether that is deciding what uh, movie to watch on a streaming site, whether it is uh, choosing a car to buy. We speak to our friends. You know, uh, I'm thinking about getting an Audi. I'm thinking about getting a Volkswagen. You know, what do you think? Um, you might watch an episode of Top Gear or some other auto show. You might go onto Auto Trader. Uh, certainly in the UK, that's a site you'd go to and you'd read independent reviews about that. You'd then work out exactly what model you want to buy, um, what color you want, what engine you want, and you'll work out what you should be paying for it. And only then will you walk into the dealer because you're going to meet this uh, young guy or girl with a thick tie that's going to go, oh, have I got a deal for you? <laughs> and you're like, don't worry, I already know exactly what's going to happen here because I've educated myself. And you take control because if you don't, you're going to get absolutely destroyed by someone that has more information and more knowledge at than, than you. And we think that it's not like that in business. That's exactly what happens in business. So whether you're a CHRO or a CIO or you're a supply chain manager or an HR administrator, you are part of your private social networks, whether that's Slack communities or Discord channels or Reddits. You're going to networking dinners or breakfast where you're speaking to your peers uh, you're speaking to colleagues that you used to work with who now work in another company. And everyone's asking, like, what are you doing? Uh, what do you recommend? Can you give me some, um, uh, you know, a short list of products? And you're figuring out what you should pay, um, what type of contract you should have. 
And only at the point when you're pretty sure what you're going to do, do you respond to that SDR email that came in and you go, actually, now is a good time to speak. And on the other end of that email is some SDR that goes, oh, I knew this new um, phrasing that I've come up with was going to work. No, they were just in the right place at the right time. And now the buyer is ready to have that, that conversation. And that will come through as an SDR outbound logged uh, lead. But actually, a load was happening before that in this kind of dark funnel before uh, before they got there. And so a lot of the conversations I have with clients is, firstly, you've got to get your head in the game that this is what's happening. It's not in your attribution model and it's not coming through Marketo or Pardot. You know, you can't see it because it's happening in, in the dark funnel. But you've got to embrace that and then figure out, right, if my customers or my potential customers are speaking to other people in these networks, how do I help guide that conversation and make sure that they've got the right uh, tools and benchmarks and diagnostics and reports and calculators that help them with that part of their process that then leads them back to responding to my SDR call or email or filling in a uh, contact me form? I think you're touching a really interesting point there. I mean, if you think about how we've historically done go-to-market, um, we try to measure everything and then attribute and then allocate budget accordingly. But what you're suggesting is essentially a complete strategic mindset shift in how we approach go-to-market, right? Um, I mean, I'm curious, like, if you if you break that down, you know, how do you operationalize that, right? I mean, I think you mentioned one thing which really resonates with me. This needs to be understood probably by the entire revenue organization, marketing, sales, right, ref ops, but then also the executives. But really curious, like, you know, are there specific things you're recommending to actually embrace that buyer enablement centricity? Yeah, one of the things that I describe with clients is what I call the revenue acceleration flywheel, which as we're on a podcast, I'll sort of describe audio style. Um, but if you imagine a, a flywheel split into two halves, the top half of it is really looking at the external experience that your uh, your prospects, your customers, and indeed your partners go through as they go through their, their buying experience. And so we start looking at, like I talked about, the dark funnel there. Where are they hanging out? And then when they do end up on your website, what's the type of content that you're providing to help educate them through the problem? And then we travel through the, their buying process as they deal with your SDRs, your AEs, going on to your solution engineers and your onboarding team and contracting and all the way through to uh, their upsell and expansion and, and hopeful, uh, hopefully renewal. So it's very much an external perspective of what they're looking through rather than being inside out. And by bringing your team together whether they are marketing, sales, customer success, whether they're from product, whether they're from finance, talking about uh, uh, pricing and, and bundling, let's really look at the experience that that buyer is going to go through. Now, like this isn't rocket science because any PLG type company does this the whole time because I haven't got any salespeople. Um, it's all about how do we design our product so that the buying experience you know, is conducive to helping you to encourage new people to join, to make it really easy to click the buy now button, to make it really easy to add in new new users. So in PLG, it's all about growth and experimentation to improve this experience. But for some reason, when we get into enterprise, we go, whoa, 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 you know, we don't care about the buyer's experience anymore. Let's not listen 
to what they want. When they say, I want pricing, let's not give them that. Uh, when they ask that, uh, you know, can I have a look at the product? Well, you can't have a look at the product. We make it really difficult for them to to buy and to, uh, to, to become customers of ours. So it's really just helping from a founder uh, to your revenue leaders to have this different change of mind shift to to think about it from the perspective of your your buyers rather than going, ah, I've read a book on how we do enterprise sales and it involves silos and it involves passing off between teams and it involves not giving the customer what they want when they want it. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to check out the RevOps Letter, a newsletter where Yanis and I share insights from the best revenue operators in the world. It's packed with actionable tips, insightful reports, and strategic advice. And if you have questions, just hit reply and we'll answer them personally. That's what over 1,000 operators love about it already. Go to getweflow.com slash RevOpsLetter or just go to the show notes and subscribe now. I think like one thing that I, I think we also experience here at WeFlow every now and then is that sometimes you have to go into that challenger mode where actually the customer, like the buyer, they actually don't know exactly what they're looking for or they have like this vague idea of what they want. But we actually do know better because you've, you've heard that story like before and you know that it's not going to work out and you have a better suggestion. So you kind of like you don't want them to go all in on your product without supervision because um, otherwise um, they basically will they will go into the product, they will try to do that, do their thing, um, they will fail because that's just not the intention here of the product. And then so you need to be more in control there. Right? I think that's also like a, a valid take um, that you, you can have. Um, though I generally agree with what you're saying, but I think there are these moments like for specific types of products where it's just like, at, like really important that you you actually educate the buyer, and then in order to do that, you need to have that wall somewhere in order to put them like, hey, pause, you know, like let us explain a few things to you. Uh, yes, but I think there's ways around that. So I think about my uh, my teenage daughter when we're having a discussion about something, and she'll often say, uh, "That's that sounds like a you problem, not a me problem." <laughs> And uh, <laughs> when we think about enterprise uh, companies, like, oh, well, you know, we can't share um, uh, pricing because it's quite complicated and we can't give you a look into the product because you probably wouldn't understand it. And if I was a customer, I'd be going, that sounds like a you problem, not a me problem. If your pricing is too complicated and your product is too, too complicated to guide me through, then that, that sounds like you need to figure that out rather than saying I need to click a contact us uh, button. So I think there's def there's definitely ways around that. Um, one, one example that I like is Snowflake. And Snowflake, you think that's super complicated because you're dealing with data coming from private clouds and public clouds and the pricing model is consumption-based. So I mean, like, you know, how do you give a price for, for something? But they have a standing webinar in loads of different languages uh, every week, which is from zero to Snowflake. So in half an hour, they'll take anyone from not knowing anything about Snowflake to having running their first reports using a, a um, sort of standard set of data, a data file that they give that everyone uploads. So it, it takes you on that journey. And they'll help you understand a little bit about how that, that pricing model works. 
Um, other ones are sort of you know, clickable demos where people can go around or guided videos. So I think it's the onus is on us as technology companies to figure out like if we can't answer the question of how much does it cost and what does it look like, we've got to figure out how do we let someone do that? Because in their problem identification phase, which is when they're in these other uh, networking groups or they're just browsing around, they're in the moment. They're trying to figure it out right then. And to take the wind out of their sails and say, right, I can give you that, but it's going to be next Wednesday, um, just just slows down the process they're in. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good example, actually. And um, yeah, I fully agree. I mean, for sure, there are ways around it. And I think like, yeah, like, um, I mean, there's all the opportunities in the world, right, to create content, to put it out there, to make it available to everybody. And I think really companies shouldn't be like scared of like people stealing their ideas or designs. I think, you know, Maybe like if somebody wants to do that, they'll find a way anyway. Um, so that's that's not a good argument against it. And um, this again comes back to my journey to to revenue operations in that it's not even about just marketing and sales because as sales, we don't know enough. It's customer success that have the goodness because they know what customers are actually doing with the product. Like this is the phase that they typically roll out, you know, module by module. Uh, this is typically the integrations that they build in your sector. Uh, this is typically how they determine the value that they're getting from the product. Uh, this is typically how they negotiate contractual terms or whatever it might be. And that's the kind of important insight that someone wants right at the start of the process when they're in a Discord or a Slack community. So for me, I'm always trying to think about how do we um, almost interview the CSMs, the onboarding teams, the renewal teams, and figure out, and of course the customers, because they're the ones that are really using it, and figure out what can we learn from them that we can take all the way to the start of the process and help someone that's in that problem identification phase to, to educate themselves. I mean, I, th I think this re really resonates very well with me because if you think about that general notion of bias, just having so much information once they enter the process, they want to go specific, right? They want to know the nitty gritty. They want to know how that software is essentially helping them to succeed and drive that, you know, like solve that problem they are trying to solve. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really curious, like, what does this mean for the journey, right? Whether you're a product-led or you have a clickable demo or, you know, you're sales-led, but like once you basically come inbound and you have high consideration stage, right? Like, who should the buyers talk to, in, in your opinion? In my opinion, and of course it depends on uh, inbound versus outbound, but someone that is coming inbound should, wants to speak to someone that can answer their question. And uh, if you're going to put them in touch with someone that just cannot answer that question, that's going to be coordinating, you're causing some, some frustration. So there's a lot of talk at the moment about do you have uh, SDRs, or when I started in sales, I was a full cycle AE. You know, I, I turned up first day, um, given a set of leads out of Goldmine, which was the CRM system back then, and you know, you start calling. Now, one of the advantages of that was that my goal was not to book a meeting. You know, I wasn't going to pay for uh, you know my food and my rent, but through booking meetings, I was paid on getting customers that. Uh, would sign a contract. And so through those first few months, you're taking people the whole way through the the process and getting through the contracting and then onto the onboarding. Now, the beauty of that for me was that I learned stuff from the end of the process 
that I could then bring back to the next outbound call or inbound call that I received. I was much more valuable to the customer at the start because of what I was doing at the end. One of the challenges with the, the SDR model today is that um, the SDRs, whilst they're fantastic and they're working hard and they're you know, really trying to you know, accelerate their career, they just haven't got the knowledge of what happens later on because they haven't experienced it. And so when someone calls in and they're asking, right, I'm now educated. If you think about you know, me with the car, I've spoken to my friends, I've been on Auto Trader, I know the model I want, I now want to have an educated conversation with you. And I'm now speaking to someone that knows less than I do. Well, I don't really know about the product. I'm not certified on that. And I don't really know how the pricing works. And I don't really know about the contract terms. Um, but I can organize a call with someone that can. And I'm like, mm, that's why I called in. That's why I booked this call. Um, so I definitely think for, for, for companies, there is conversation to be had about, do you funnel those in depending on the, uh, the account, maybe the size of the account, um, and make sure they get quickly to someone that can answer that question. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. I think it's so important and uh, such a annoyance. Uh, and I think especially in markets where you have product led and just different sales motions competing with you, you really have to be uh, very conscious about that that approach and 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 change it. And I think you can route right, like you can route to different you know AE types, you know SME, mid market, enterprise. Um, with different capabilities, but being able to quickly understand the value. Uh, and it's similar to the pricing discussion, right? You don't have to go into the scoping discussion immediately, but at least give a range, you know, give an understanding. Uh, and I think this goes further than through the sales process and also the discovery process, right? Like, But maybe let's switch gears a bit. Uh, I know we want to talk a bit about you know, how are the organizations changing, you know, in seed series A, series B, how is RevOps, you know, how should it set up? I mean, you, you spend a lot of time on that. I'm curious what your thoughts are. When I, when I moved into the world of uh, revenue operations and I was thinking about where I can add the most value to clients, I built out a spreadsheet and the columns were the different uh, funding rounds, seed, A, B, C, D, E. And uh, in the rows, I did a lot of research across different uh, VC firms report, across uh, SASTA articles and uh, sessions, Carter, who provide a lot of um, equity management uh, data, and just help myself to really understand uh, what each of these businesses look like at each stage, uh, the number of employees they've got, the amount of revenue they're doing, the number of products they've got, the number of countries they're selling into, and how their GTM teams are structured. And also specifically uh, what their revenue operations organization uh, might look like. And it was really insightful because in coming into this, I think where someone like me adds most value is actually a later stage organization, um, like Series D, E, because they've got a lot of stuff that's broken and there's lots of opportunity to, to optimize that. But actually, as I came back to Series B, to Series A, and indeed to Series, uh, well, Seed Series, you can see that at Series A, and of course, it depends on the industry, where we are in the economic cycle and um, the geography. But typically, you'd say that it's at um, Series A, a team has just come out of finding product market fit. They've got about 30 people in the company and maybe about 15 of those are in a go-to-market uh, function. 
And there's probably one person that has got an ops type role and they might be called a uh, marketing ops or a sales ops person. They're probably updating HubSpot and, and creating some some spreadsheets. So that's 30 people in total, uh, 15 in sales or go to market and maybe one in operations. If you then fast forward to series B, maybe a couple of years later, if they're following the right venture track, now you've got about 100 people in the organization from 30 to 100 in go-to-market roles, you've got about 70. So gone from 15 up to 70. And then in a revenue operations type role, you've gone from one person now probably to about five people led by a VP of uh, RevOps. And so for me, that was that transition. Like at the start, you haven't really got RevOps at all. And at the end, you have got it. And you've gone from you know quite a simplified go-to-market structure to something that's a bit more complex with multiple teams. And as a founder, especially if you're a technical founder that's come from a product background, you've never built this structure before. You're going to hire in a lot of new leaders, a sales leader, a marketing leader, a customer success leader. And these people are likely to have come from a company where there were lots of silos and it was this handing off from one team to another. Each of these leaders is going to come with a list of tools that they need to use. Oh, you know, we use this as our um, marketing automation platform and this is what we use for intent data. And then this is what we use for call recording and revenue intelligence. So this whole proliferation of tech stack that comes through um, and everyone is focused on their own process rather than the overall one. So you might think, right, well, let's just get a VP of RevOps in day one that can oversee this. But a really strategic revenue operations leader it's probably not going to join your scrappy startup, which is still at that point only got 30 people. So for me, it's really, that's where I can really help by partnering with a founder to be their guide as they go on this journey, building from A to B. And then hopefully at that stage, they've then got the right revenue operations structure and the culture through the organization that we have a revenue engine, a revenue team. That has some functions within it, but we are not looking at these three silos that so often creep in. I mean, I think to your earlier point, being buyer-centric, starting this rather earlier than later is super important, right? Because you're building the structure between Series A, Series B, and then into Series C. I'm curious, um, you know, like how does a typical revenue operation organization look like at Series B? I mean, if you have five people, what 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 have you found? Typically, it's built around the um, the activity that they're doing, and this is one of the reasons why it's so important to build this out from scratch rather than trying to uh, retrofit it into an organization that has already built around marketing ops, sales ops, and uh, and customer. Uh, operations. So I typically see five uh, teams and I have to say five and then I'll remember um, to, if I stop at four, you tell me. But um, so, so one of them is around strategy. So the strategy team. So this is really looking at it from the perspective of the buyer. So how are we going to architect our buyer experience? How are we going to um, structure our revenue engine in terms of our org structure and our, our strategy? Uh, pricing, bundling, the channels that we're going to use as we sell out to market. So very, very uh, strategic. And um, then you're going to have teams focused on uh, insights. So when we think about the data that we're generating across all these systems, how do we uh, generate that, uh, turn those that data into insights that we can use to create new business models or to support our teams and our customers better. Um, we've got a team around uh, systems, of course, the the tech stack uh, that we're using. 
we've got a team around uh, enablement. So how do we enable our, um, our sellers in order to do a great job? And then the fifth one, of course, I knew I was going to forget. So I have to actually look at, uh, oh, sorry, deal desk, deal desk. That's always the one that I uh, sort of uh, leave, at, leave at the back, which of course, deal desk comes in later on in an organization. But by the time you get up towards a series B, then making sure that you've got a team that can uh, win good business and that you don't suddenly discount everything on the last day of the quarter just to, to get it in is, uh, is absolutely critical. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for all these insights. I have, I have one, one, more, one more question before we, we, we come to the end or like the, the, the last closing question, so to say. Like there's one popular opinion, I think, right now that you can also read on LinkedIn quite often. And that is that from the beginning, founders should essentially sort of like um, be in that RevOps position, um, particularly doing, uh, uh, you know, pre-seed seat um, before they go to Series A. Uh, would, you, would you agree with that? And, uh, you know, what are maybe some typical issues or errors that you've seen that, that these founders make when, when taking over that RevOps role? This Series A stage, when you've still got 30, you know, maybe 30 people in the company, the, the temptation is to bring in uh, people uh, into senior leadership roles to, and as a founder, you can delegate it and maybe get back to your product heritage, which maybe you are, you came from and you're, you're very, very keen on. But at this Series A stage, the sales leader that you bring in really needs to be a player manager that's focused on delivering your monthly or revenue quarterly uh, uh, revenue number, that they're in the trenches with um, with the sales team. They should not be a uh, VP of sales and definitely not a chief revenue officer that is owning all of this, this uh, structure. And um, they are managers that are doing work and, and delivering. And so it's the same thing with revenue operations. Like you, as the founder, have got this overriding revenue responsibility that these managers are reporting into. And if you delegate that responsibility too early, you're going to miss the nuances of your business and how you're going to build this revenue engine as one single aligned uh, business. And that's one of the reasons why I mentioned at the start, I'm just writing this uh, uh, second book, uh, which is called The Revenue Operations Playbook for Founders. And it very, very uh, much is focused on helping a founder, a technical founder, an engineering background founder to understand what revenue operations means in the context of running your business. It is not systems and spreadsheets and internally focused. This is as strategic as product development is to your business. How do you do revenue development? How do you build repeatable, uh, scalable and consistent revenue? Because if you can do that as a founder, you will raise your series B and go on. If you can't demonstrate repeatable, scalable, and consistent revenue growth uh, to investors, then you will, you'll miss and, uh, and you won't be able to, to, to make that, that second raise. So it's absolutely critical that you as the founder are in the hot seat and own that function, understand that function, and can have educated conversations with your senior leaders as they come in to pick up those roles as you scale. Okay, great. Uh, thank you so much um, that, like, for all these insights that you've shared. For our listeners, we obviously add the link to your uh, website uh, into the show notes, redopscharlie.com. You can find all the books and all the valuable charts and um, yeah, just great content uh, there. Um, before we end, just one closing question that we ask all of our guests on this show. 
And that is, um, yeah, what's the advice you'd give yourself when starting your career all over again? Uh, if I was to go back to the start, the little side story quickly, I was at an agricultural college, so I learned all about farming uh, for my degree. And I got into enterprise sales just because there was a, uh, a business in that town that had some nice cars out the front. And so I knocked on the door <laughs> and asked them what they did there. And they said they were a, a, an internet service provider. And so I said, that sounds great. Uh, can I have a job? And so that's how I got into, <laughs> into sales. And uh, you know, it's, it's a conversation that I have both with my, with my own children and also with, with others that are starting their career is that you just don't know what is around the corner. The world that we work in, technology, is advancing at such a rapid rate that the job you're going to be doing in two or three years probably hasn't even been invented yet. So enjoy what you're doing, stay curious, read lots of books, and, uh, and just enjoy and, uh, and just say yes whenever an opportunity presents itself. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, just say yes. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> okay, Charlie, thank you very much. It's been like a really great pleasure. And uh, thank you for being on the show. All the best and goodbye. Thank you both. Thanks, Shadi. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the RevOps Lab podcast. Please consider to like and subscribe our show and give us a five-star rating on wherever you're listening. If you have feedback or suggestions, let us know at podcast at getreflow.com. We read and reply to every email. Thank you. Thank you.